0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview with the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. This week, we'll be looking at the plight of migrants fleeing persecution in Burma and Bangladesh in the light of the discovery in recent days of graves in human traffickers camps on the Malaysia-Thailand border. We'll also be analysing the results of the weekend's election results in Spain, which have shaken up the political order in that country. But first, two events in Iraq and Syria, where the militant insurgent group Islamic State has made striking gains over the past 10 days. First of all, taking control of Ramadi, a city just over 120 kilometres from Baghdad, and also seizing the ancient Syrian city of Palmyra. The fall of Ramadi in particular has raised questions about the effectiveness of the US-led airstrikes against Islamic State in Iraq. And I'm joined from Washington by our correspondent Simon Carswell. Simon, as we speak, uh, the Iraqi government has announced the beginning of its operation to retake Anbar province and its capital, Ramadi, from Islamic State. But it's fair to say that all is not well within the coalition of forces fighting the militant group. First, we had the US Defence Secretary, Ash Carter, saying at the weekend that Iraqi soldiers had shown no will to fight Islamic State. How much frustration is there there in Washington at how easy it seemed to be for Islamic State to take Ramadi from an Iraqi army that was was superior in numbers and, and should have been better equipped and better trained too?
2: I think there's considerable uh, frustration, and it also raises some fundamental questions about uh, what the Obama administration is doing to fight ISIS. Um, uh, The fall of Ramadi really shows the limits of the so-called Obama doctrine. This is Obama's foreign policy strategy of limited engagement in regional conflicts to avoid another protracted war like the unpopular, unpopular conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the strategy of relying on local forces combined with Uh, U.S. airstrikes. The difficulty for the United States is is that they can't rely on local forces, which challenges the strategy and really puts pressure on the U.S. for more active engagement. And Ramadi shows the weaknesses in that strategy. So the question is going to be asked Is well, does the U.S. need combat boots on the ground to fight ISIS rather than leading and coordinating airstrikes with other Arab nations and training local fighters? Obama himself not really budging on the strategy. Um, Last week in an interview, with the Atlantic and and, uh, correspondent Jeffrey Goldberg, whom he's spoken to a number of times on his foreign policy strategies. he said to Goldberg that, you know, when he was asked if the U.S. was losing the fight against Islamic State, he was asked this question the day after Ramadi had fallen and the day before Palmyra in Syria had fallen. He said, no, I don't think we're losing this. And he said, there's no doubt there was a tactical setback. But he did point to the fact that Ramadi had been vulnerable for a long time, primarily because these Iraqi security forces hadn't been trained or reinforced So he's sticking with his message, really. He said, no, the fall of Ramadi is not a failure of U.S. foreign policy and our strategy with ISIS. It's just that the Iraqi forces um, in Ramadi had not been helped under Obama's strategy to tackle ISIS. And Ash Carter really is going a little bit further than what Obama said by saying that the Iraqi military had showed no will to fight. Um, He also points out, which is interesting, is that the Iraqi forces had actually outnumbered ISIS somewhere in the region of 10 to 1, And he said that that says to him um, that there's an issue with the will of the Iraqis to fight ISIS and defend themselves. So really that goes back to, well, is this, uh, is the U.S. strategy? Can they actually rely on local forces to beat ISIS? Um, You've had some criticism from uh, the likes of Republican John McCain, who's a foreign policy hawk and has uh, has been pushing the Obama administration for much more aggressive action in uh, Iraq. And he's called for 3,000 US military uh, beyond the 3,000 military personnel in Iraq, and saying, "Well, you know, this, we need spotters on the ground to help US airstrikes against ISIS positions." So
1: did he, he renewed that call at the weekend, didn't he? But is is there any um, indication that there's any appetite on the on the part of the White House to to put boots on the ground?
2: There's not. And and Obama's not budging from that strategy. He has said from the outset that even when he upped the campaign against ISIS, that it would not involve combat troops on the ground. And uh, Ash Carter wasn't budging from this uh, either over the weekend. He said, well, uh, they're not looking at it yet. The Pentagon is not looking at the possibility of even uh, more limited um, uh, extra troops in the in the sense that there would just be spotters helping, uh, helping local forces on the ground. Uh, McCain really wants uh, the Obama administration to go much, much further. And he's pointed to the surge in Iraq during the Iraq war, where uh, Bush ordered tens of thousands more U.S. troops uh, into Iraq. And he's pointed to that as an example of how we uh, really stabilise the situation and point to the fact that Obama's decision to withdraw troops in their entirety in 2011 has created this vacuum that led to the rise of ISIS.
1: And if, if airstrikes are seen not to be working and events over the past 10 days, which is yes, they're not, although maybe that's too short a time frame, and if Obama doesn't want to commit to sending in ground forces, w- uh, where's the strategy then going from here? Or, or is it the case that perhaps the White House still has uh, has faith in, in the airstrikes policy to deliver in the longer run?
2: Well, the Obama administration has shown over the last number of years that it 's not willing to react uh, uh, to be reactionary in terms of um, losses in the Middle East. They laid down the national strategy in a strategy document in February where they said they warned against overreach in making decisions and you had susan rice, president obama 's national security adviser, saying that the u s couldn't be af- couldn 't afford to be buffeted by alarmism in a nearly instantaneous news cycle so that would suggest that they're willing to hold for the long uh, for the long haul on this and not willing to change their strategy. I mean, what's interesting is that this comes in the face of a changing public opinion in the United States. Um, this time last year, uh, the vast majority of Americans would have been opposed to even any kind of conflict in the Middle East. And since then, we've seen a change in opinion, mainly as a result of the reaction to these gruesome beheadings of American journalists last summer. And the public opinion is shifting. We had a poll in February from CNN, which found that 57% of Americans disapprove of Obama's handling uh, against the threat posed by ISIS, and this is up from 49%. But more recent um, poll findings have shown that there's actually a willingness among some Americans for uh, troops on the ground. There was um, a poll done by Harvard of 18 to 29-year-olds, the millennials, and they found that that... that group, that age demographic was becoming much more hawkish on the question of US involvement in the Middle East. And they've that surveyed by the Harvard University Institute of Politics. They found in late April that 57% of people favour sending ground troops to participate in a military campaign. So while the Obama administration itself is against it, the public is shifting towards us.
1: Right. And of course uh, Simon, one of the consequences of the absence of, of ground troops, of US ground troops, is that it has opened up a space for Shia militias uh, uh, backed by Iran to take the lead in trying to retake Ramadi, how much concern is there in the US that, that in fact, the US seems to have long ago surrendered the initiative to Iran on the battlefield in 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 Iraq um, in the fight against the Islamic State? And is there a danger that there's a long-term consequence there of a, a diminished US influence in the region?
2: Well, there is. And, you know, the concerns have been raised largely by the more hawkish elements, obviously, in the, in the Republican Party. Um, and this has also raised questions for uh, U.S. alliances with the Arab nations, Saudi Arabia, and other nations in the Gulf region. Um, and are, those, those nations are, are concerned about, uh, as well, the diplomatic talks with Iran, and they're heading for an end-of-June deadline where they're going to conclude this deal that will, in fact, leave uh, Iran with some nuclear capacity, not to develop a nuclear weapon, according to the, the negotiations negotiators, uh, U.S.-led negotiators, uh, but a capacity to uh, develop nuclear power. But that's alarmed uh, uh, U.S. allies in the region, because what it does is, is that it shifts the balance of power in the region to Iran, and certainly the Arab nations are concerned, like we're seeing the conflict in Yemeni and all these proxy wars involving Iran-backed uh, groups. And the yeah, Arab nations are concerned about that. We had a summit here earlier this month where a number of the, US, the Arab nations, the leaders, pulled out, and that was seen as a snub to Obama over the strategy with regards to the Iranian talks on the nuclear issue. So there's a lot of concern that this is a president that's really shifting, he's really retrenching back to the U.S. on on the Middle East. He's reluctant to uh, engage in conflict or in, increase conflict in the region and much much more eager to look for diplomatic solutions. But... That's, um, that's a concern. The Republican side, the fear is that it's embo- emboldening, emboldening um, uh, um, uh, 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 opponents in the region and, uh, and encouraging the likes of ISIS to really take the fight to uh, the American allies in the region and the Americans themselves.
1: And if the public, Simon, is becoming more hawkish in its view, as you pointed out um, a moment ago, uh, how is that likely to impact the presidential election and the foreign policy approach of, of the candidates in that?
2: Well, this is an area that really Republican candidates are trying to grapple with at the moment. You have a very large field of Republican presidential candidates either declared or about to declare um, now, while they win, will win over a lot of hawkish supporters in the Republican ranks in the primary elections in the early stages of the presidential cycle, uh, election cycle, and they really have to be careful because they need to win over moderates and independents in the general election to win the White House and to prevent the Democrats from winning a third term in the White House. So, you have a number of them who are being very hawkish of the likes of former uh, New York Governor George Pataki, who's expected to announce as presidential candidates short, shortly. He's for arguing for a much more robust presence of U.S. ground troops in ISIS. And then we had uh, a, a close ally of John McCain, Senator Lindsey Graham, the South Carolina senator, who recently said, He'd send in 10,000 American troops to fight ISIS, and he really is intending to run for the presidency on a foreign policy platform, attacking Obama for his failure to engage more actively in the Middle East. And you also have um, former Texas Governor Rick Perry who's expected to announce his candidacy as well. He's saying eliminating ISIS would require some boots on the ground, whereas other Republicans are much more careful. Uh, One of the leading uh, Republican candidates, Jeb Bush, hasn't announced yet, but is expected to announce in the coming weeks. He's saying uh, he's, he's much more careful on, on what should be done. He's saying fudge the issue somewhat and saying uh, he's deferring to the advice of U.S. military commanders. But it really is a hot topic at the moment in uh, the presidential election campaign, primarily on the Republican side.
1: And whereas in the last election, Obama, I think, gained ground by taking a different stance from the more the, the aggressive uh, stance of his predecessor, uh, George Bush. Um, is it more likely then, are we likely to have a, a counter reaction this time where, if you say public opinion is shifting, um, are the candidates who will promote a more aggressive U.S. Uh, foreign policy stance, are they more, more likely to win favour with, with voters?
2: Well, I think that they're going to tread very, very carefully. Um, Republican candidates are going to appeal to Republican voters early in the process to try and win the Republican presidential nomination. So you're going to see much more hawkish talk. But I think it'll soften somewhat as the uh, campaign progresses towards the the general election itself in November 2016. And again, I think against that backdrop, you're going to see a lot of focus on what ISIS is doing, how uh, the U.S. military strategy in the Middle East is playing out during that time. So it's going to be a very interesting 18 months. And you're going to see a lot of um, kicking for touch by candidates, being very careful as to what they come out and say. We saw in recent weeks, Jeb Bush really um, was struggling when trying to answer questions about whether his brother was right to have gone in and invaded Iraq on faulty intelligence and intelligence that suggested uh, that Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of mass destruction. And he's really struggled and been uh, damaged somewhat uh, by a series of answers that he gave earlier this month about what he would do and whether his brother was right. So I think that that's going to uh, hang over a lot of the candidates, and they're not going to want to repeat what um, what Jeb Bush has done. But you have other candidates who are very careful, uh, the likes of Marco Rubio, the the Florida senator, who's again one of the favourites on the on the Republican side. He's been very very careful not to alienate uh, George W. Bush's supporters, but also uh, careful not to commit himself uh, to saying that there needs to be ground troops in Iraq. So. Uh, there, there's going to it's going to be a very interesting uh, 18 months uh, on the foreign policy side to see how strongly those candidates come out against Obama's policy uh, it, with regard to ISIS. And they certainly are very, very negative at the moment, but they're not seeing themselves what they would actually do.
1: And finally, Simon, what about on the Democratic side? Is, I mean, Hillary Clinton, I think, has always been viewed as probably more... Um maybe hawkish is the wrong word, but uh, more in favour of of intervention than Obama, is she likely to, to, um, uh, how much would she differentiate her position from that of of Obama in the campaign? Well,
2: Well, much like the Iraq issue is going to hang over the Republican race, it's going to hang over the Democratic race as well, because Hillary Clinton, as you know, is Obama's Secretary of State in his first term. She's been very quiet on foreign policy. Uh, Her her campaign announcement in April made absolutely no reference to foreign policy, even though she had been... um, quite hawkish hawkish for a democrat certainly uh, when it comes to uh, the middle east and um, she had encouraged obama uh, and and he, he he didn't take this up she had encouraged obama to arm the moderate rebels in syria much earlier in in that conflict but she has said very very little it's all all of her focus in the presidential campaign so far has been on domestic issues uh, issues such as uh, economic inequality immigration uh, small businesses and um, and really it's all about an economic Message, message largely for Hillary Clinton, and we're waiting to see what she would do and what policy she will have with regard to
1: ISIS. Okay, well time will tell. Um, Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you for that. The discovery in recent days of at least 139 graves in abandoned camps used by people traffickers on the Malaysia-Thailand border has drawn renewed attention to the plight of the Rohingya Muslims from Burma fleeing persecution in that country. Our Beijing correspondent Clifford Coonan joins me now. Clifford, can I begin by asking you to remind us who are the Rohingya Muslims and why are so many of them apparently desperate to leave Burma and prepared to take a tremendous risk uh, by taking to the seas to seek a new life elsewhere?
0: Well, the Rohingya Muslims um, are um, based on um, in Burma and for many years now they've been at the, the centre of... Um, of um, they're basically a stateless people. There's 1.1 million of them. And they've been persecuted by by Burma's Buddhist majority. Um, in the last couple of years, in the western state of Rakhine in Burma, um, about 140,000 um, Rohingyas have been driven from their homes, and another 100,000 have fled by sea. And there's also been very many of them have died in the clashes with um, with with the um, with the local Buddhists. So they're one of these uh, these uh, displaced people almost that are sort of moving around. Uh, that particular part of Burma, and they, they have been brought by human smugglers then through southern Thailand and held in camps along the Malaysian border. So one of, that would be the reason why they feature so strongly in the news reports of recent days about these grisly discoveries.
1: Okay, and what is the latest on these um, uh, graves? Wh- what do we know about the circumstances in which these people were living, uh, what these camps were like, and, and and what's the latest on the on the discovery of the graves and the exhumation of bodies?
0: Well, it now, it now looks like the Malaysian police have begun the process of exhuming the bodies of migrant workers who were held in these jungle camps. Um, they were held in sort of tents. Um, looking at the, the pictures, um, they were held for, um, in, in these makeshift tents, which were sort of dotted along the border so they could be moved quickly from place to place. Um, but many of them were held for ransom there. And, um, and those who, who uh, where their families would basically pay a ransom after to, to ensure their freedom. And um, and then those who, who died were buried in 139 graves. That's the figure that they're um, working with at the moment.
1: And you're you right in the Irish Times today about the fact that these camps were in, in dense jungle in areas difficult to access. Um, but there must be questions about the failure of authorities in, in Malaysia and Thailand to to have basically discovered them before now and to take effective action against people traffickers before now?
0: That's right. I mean, um, we saw a couple of weeks ago in Thailand there was a discovery of camps with, with some dead bodies and, um, and this was immediately there was pressure put on the military junta in, um, in Thailand to do something about it, which they did um, very quickly. Um, but they, they reacted in a kind of a not in my backyard kind of way. Um, and they appear to be driven across the border um, and so um, it 's a very difficult area to police as well because it 's very mountainous. Um, the border is often isn 't marked, so you 're just sort of moving um, through these um, through these areas. You have the southern Songkla province in Thailand, and then the area then bordering with malaysia so um, Basically, the official reaction: the Malaysians appear so far to have been the most uh, forthright in in um, in dealing with the issue, and they've been staging press conferences. and um, The national police chief, Khalid Abdul Bakar, um, has been um, discussing um, the details of the operation.
1: And is it is um, is it credible that they're talking in certainly a very um, hard language now about clamping down on the trafficking and and? Uh, bringing those involved to justice, is there any indication that they even know who these traffickers are, that they know where to find them, and that they are prepared to deal with this problem once and for all?
0: Yeah, I think, I think it certainly um, there's a lot of international pressure um, to do this, and, and the governments are certainly um, appearing to do as much as they can. Um, the problem with human trafficking is always that um, once attention moves away, that it, it resumes. And um, so it may be that it stops now for a while, um, but it, it'll just move somewhere else in the region. Um, it's, uh, these are very, very poor areas, and people are always going to leave. It's like whenever there's um, a crisis that happens on the Mexican border or when uh, we have crises of people coming into, um, into Europe from, from the southern nations. There's an outcry, and then it, eventually it starts up again. So um, you know, I imagine that something similar will happen in this case. Uh, there's also a a, a a nautical element to this, where um, a lot of the um, um, the migrants are being sent by sea, and they've just been left um, drifting now in the ocean, and no country in the region wants to take them in, which I think is a very similar scenario or familiar scenario to to Europe, um, where you know we have the same sort of scenarios there. So um, there could be anything up to 3,000 people still out at sea, um, and. Malaysia and Indonesia have agreed to stop rejecting boats. Um, Thailand said they're not letting them into their territory, but they will operate a a kind of a floating aid uh, uh, vessel uh, to help the people, but they don't want them entering their territory. So, um, you know, the the problem seems to be um, shifting from the mountains, where obviously this terrible event has happened, and it's now become a maritime issue.
1: And and as you mentioned, Clifford, 3,000 still at sea, but we did have an announcement recently by Malaysia and Indonesia of a plan to temporarily uh, take in these people. Um, Why are so many still at sea? And uh, um, is this plan actually happening on the ground?
0: Um, It seems to be. um, It's, um, as I said, mostly coming because of international pressure. Um, There's a Navy, the Thais have sent a Navy ship with surveillance aircraft, Um, and they've said they'll stop towing boats away from their territory, which is what they've been doing now. Um, It's all basically, uh, um, it's it's still open to see how this exactly uh, plays out. And obviously, we're still dealing with the horrific situation on the border um, with Malaysia and Thailand there, where um, they're discovering these camps. So um, um, looking ahead, um, I imagine a lot of the refugees are, are sort of wondering what, are the migrant workers are, are looking ahead now, thinking what what their future holds because there a lot of these people are stateless. They they can't go back to Burma, they can't go back to Bangladesh. I, I noticed today also that um, Bangladesh's leader Sheikh Hasina has said that anyone trying to leave the country illegally should be punished along with the human traffickers. Along with the human traffickers, so. Um, they're very much caught between a rock and a hard place. So I think going forward, um, the question will be to see how the international community deals with this, this problem and, and how it maintains pressure on, on these um, countries to make sure that the response is, is humane and adequate.
1: OK. Clifford, we'll leave it there. Um, thank you for that. And that's a, a subject you'll be continuing to write about this week in The Irish Times. Next, we'll be talking to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid about the weekend's election results in Spain. You're listening to the Irish Times. And finally, to Spain, where regional and local elections this weekend delivered, if not quite a political earthquake, then certainly a tremor strong enough to shake the foundations of the established order. Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent in Madrid, joins me from there. Uh, Guy, is that a fair description of what took place on Sunday? Uh, Not quite an earthquake, but but the ground shook, could you say that?
3: Well, that's right. There's very much a feeling here that this is the beginning of the end of an era, really, for Spanish politics, because um, it was a very bad result in these municipal and regional elections for the the governing popular party, which is still the the most um, voted party, the party with the most votes across the country, but it's lost... Uh, it's that the majority that held in many of those regions and many major cities, as well as other smaller towns and cities across the country. So um, it's it seen as a major loss of influence for the, the Conservative Popular Party, which governs Spain as a whole. And we're seeing a big rise of leftist parties, particularly this new leftist movement, Podemos, um, which is sort of the equivalent of Syriza in Greece, uh, an anti-austerity party, kind of anti-establishment to a certain extent. And so there's a kind of new left here in Spain. And what we saw on Sunday was sort of a reflection of that change. Certainly the electoral map has been redrawn very much. Uh, we're going to have general elections later this year. I think those could deliver possibly more of an earthquake. Um, than what we saw on Sunday. But certainly Sunday was seen as the beginning of a big change.
1: And uh, the, the, the governing popular party lost support, as you say. What about the socialists, the, the main opposition? Um, how did they fare?
3: Well, I mean, on the face of it, they did quite badly. They lost 700,000 votes, which sounds pretty awful. But given the circumstances, given the arrival of this Podemos party on the left, uh, another new party in the centre or centre-right called Ciudadanos, which has been doing very well as well, it was seen as not such a bad result for the socialists. And also, looking beyond the the actual statistics and figures, the the socialists could find themselves in government or involved in governing pacts across Spain in towns and cities and regions where they had been locked out previously because they're expected to reach governing uh, pacts with uh, people like Podemos or Ciudadanos over the coming days and weeks. So that essentially gives them an influence that they didn't have just a few days ago. So in that sense, it was quite a good result for them.
1: Okay, Is it clear yet, Guy, whether the likes of uh, Podemos are willing to um, enter into uh, arrangements with socialists or not?
3: Well... That's the big sort of issue that's raging at the moment, and um, I mean the feeling is that in places such as uh, Madrid, um, that, was, that is probably going to happen Barcelona it's expected to happen. Those are the two sort of big results of the of, of the weekend where um, the, uh, the the popular Party in Madrid lost out and where the uh, Catalan nationalists lost out in Barcelona they're expected to reach a The the, the uh, Podemos-backed parties are expected to reach agreements with the socialists, although that's not definite yet. But what we did see back in March was a regional election in Andalusia. The socialists won there. They didn't get a majority. And for the last two months, they haven't been able to reach an agreement with Podemos or any of the other parties in order to be able to have... Um, uh, some kind of governing partnership which can allow the the region to move on. So if that is any sort of um, example to the rest of the country, things could be very tricky when it comes to the negotiations. And they're just starting right now. This week is when they all kick off.
1: And is it clear now that um, whatever arrangements they come to uh, at at local and regional level, um, Spain is looking at a general election. Is it before the end of the year or, or likely to be before the end of the year? Um, And is it clear now that that neither the the popular party nor the socialists will be able to uh, secure uh, an overall majority? And are are we seeing the end of this two, two party system that has dominated in Spain more or less since the end of the Franco dictatorship?
3: Well, the general election is expected to take place either in November or December. I think it can, it can happen uh, until uh, February of next year. We're expecting it by the end of this year, though. Um, and, I mean, if you look at the, the, the local election results at the weekend, they gave the Socialists and the Popular Party around 50% of the, of the vote overall. That compares to so around 70 or 80% that they had been sharing out until uh quite recently so that gives you an idea to how much their influence has waned there's a feeling that no party is going to be able to get a majority certainly it'd be very difficult for either the socialists uh or the popular party or, or any party to get a, a majority in the general elections so spain is entering a new era the, the two the bi-party system which has been in place really for 35 years or so is coming to an end there are four parties that uh, really have a, an influence now um, and it's an era in which Spanish parties are going to have to uh, reach pacts with each other and they're not used to doing that they don't have much of a culture of reaching packs and that is something new for them
1: Right, yeah and you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, uh, this new party Ciudadanos we know, uh, we've heard a lot about Podemos here we haven't heard so much about Ciudadanos what, um, where do they come from and, and what do they stand for?
0: Well,
3: they were actually formed uh, as a Catalan party about a decade ago, as an exclusively Catalan party up in the northeast, where, where they opposed very strongly the the idea of, of Catalonia breaking away from Spain or gaining extra autonomy from Spain. So they were sort of opposing Catalan nationalism, um, and they sort of placed themselves in the centre sort of centre right of the political spectrum, um, and they felt that their message was sort of having such success that they, uh, they expanded it nationwide just a few months ago, um, also with great success. Um, and they've been kind of a sort of center-right um, counterpart to Podemos in recent months. They, they see themselves as business-friendly, um, kind of a, a sort of nicer face of conservatism compared to the popular parties, how they they present themselves. Um, I think we'll no, find out more about them, about what they believe in and what they want to do with the country with these packs that they're trying to form. Um, at the moment, whether it be with the Socialists or with the Popular Party. I think that will give us a closer um, closer detail, give us more of an idea as to what they actually stand for. But they performed quite well. They were the fourth party overall um, in in Sunday's elections, so they've had a pretty good result.
1: Okay. And uh, you did mention there, Guy, about Madrid and Barcelona in particular delivering interesting results. Um, Barcelona in particular, there's a a, a very interesting, uh, likely new um, uh, candidate for mayor there, isn't that right?
3: That's right. Ada Colau is uh, almost certainly going to be the the new mayor. Uh, she defeated the uh, the Catalan nationalists uh, with a platform. Which it, it was it wasn't uh, actually a Podemos Podemos party running on its own. It was a, a, a coalition of parties, including Podemos, running out there in Barcelona, and that was really a, a big surprise. They they uh, have taken um, Barcelona City Hall. It seems if they can form the governing coalition to do so. Uh, she's a 41-year-old uh, political activist, someone who's not come from the political establishment, but has come very much from grassroots activism. Um, she, just a few years ago, was squatting in a flat in Barcelona. She's very involved in the, the campaign for social housing. Uh, she was a co-founder of a movement which has helped families affected by evictions due to the recent economic yeah. crisis, has been a big issue. She says that's going to be a major priority for her her programme when she becomes mayor, which we're all expecting. And also, she, if she does become mayor, will be the first female mayor Barcelona has ever had.
1: I, I was going to ask you as well, Guy, about... I think all of us, and I'm sure in Spain is no different, we've all been watching with some fascination the, the politi- political developments in Greece over the past while. And um, we've seen how... Uh, Cyrilla, sometimes regarded as the, the Greek equivalent of uh, Podemos, have succeeded in uh, getting into government, leading the government. But we've seen the difficulties they've had trying to maintain their ideals while while also dealing with the reality of, of power. Um, has the this experience had any impact on how people view Podemos in Spain? As to, um, do they say now, what's the point in in electing a radical party if uh, to government if they're just going to get swallowed up by the system when they get there?
3: Well, I think there's been some effect for Podemos, Um, and I mean, you you know, you're you're right to point out the links between Podemos and Syriza. I mean, they do have very close links. Uh, Pablo Iglesias, who's the the 36-year-old leader of Podemos, was actually in Athens back in January um, campaigning on behalf of Syriza during the the Greek general election campaign, Um, and, uh, you know, he he has talked a lot about Greece and the good that Syriza is doing. So there is a very close association there in Spaniards' minds between the two parties. But... There is a feeling that if things go very badly for Syriza in Greece in terms of negotiations with the European uh, authorities, that could have an impact uh, on Podemos's performance. Uh, And some some would argue it already has had an impact. I mean, Podemos was leading national polls in Spain uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, and since then, its nationwide support has actually dropped slightly. Now, some would just say that's just a, you know, a, a natural um, development. But others have pointed to, to the performance of Syriza in Greece and saying, well, you know, that might be a factor that plays on people's minds. I think certainly going into the general elections at the end of this year, uh, people are going to be looking very closely um, at the precedent of Syriza in Greece and comparing the two parties. It's interesting to note that Polemos has been a bit more quiet about Greece and comparing itself to Syriza in Greece in recent weeks, recent months. It didn't talk about Greece much during the election campaign. So maybe they'll be slightly downplaying that comparison, um, especially if things don't go well for Syriza.
1: Has it, in fact, moved a little more to the centre in the recent past, Podemos, than, than it was?
3: That's right, yeah. I mean, I mean when Podemos first emerged um, at the beginning of 2014, I mean it's only been around for less than 18 months, remember. When it first emerged, it was... You know, seen as a very radical party by many, it was. It seemed to come from from the left, certainly very much left of the um, of, of the Socialist Party in Spain, um, with this anti-austerity message, an anti-establishment message. It was talking about auditing the national debt, uh, issues like that, um, and. More recently, sort of towards Christmas time, it seems to moderate its, uh, its policy somewhat. It, it, it ditched talk of, of auditing the national debt or not paying the national debt, as it had previously announced. Um, it ditched some other more controversial, arguably more radical policies as well. And now its leader, Pablo Iglesias, is talking very openly about it being a social democratic party. He seems very consciously to be avoiding this uh, tag of, of radicals. Um, and he seems to be trying to court people, not just on the left, but in the centre uh, of, uh, of the Spanish, uh, Spanish politics. Um, I and mean, we'll have to see if they, if they have success with that, with the general elections. But that certainly seems to be the aim
1: of Polemos at the moment. Okay. Well, certainly a very interesting few months ahead there, I think, Guy. So thank you for that analysis. That's all from this week's Worldview. From producer Declan Conlon, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and me, Chris Dooley, thank you for listening and goodbye.